Welcome to the podcast on Natural Dallas, or the pond for short. Here's where we take the measure of the natural world that is all around us, probing its secrets, and beholding its mysterious wonders. The flora, the fauna, the earth below our feet, and the sky above our heads. All is for a game as we wade ever more deeply into the waters of discovery. This podcast is brought to you by the staff of the Dallas Public Library, where we strive to connect the curious with the passionate and foster a culture of lifelong learning. The views shared on this podcast are those of its participants and not those of the library or the city of Dallas. Let's get started. Welcome to The Pond. I'm Greg. We're privileged to have Howard Garrett, also known as the Dirt Doctor, as our guest for today's episode. Howard is an arborist and specialist in natural organic tree care. He's a nationally syndicated organic gardening talk show host and can be heard Sundays from 8 to 11 a.m. on K-Sky 660 a.m. here in the Dallas area, as well as in over 200 markets across the nation. Howard's authored 15 books on organic gardening, landscaping, and pest control. He's a columnist for the Dallas Morning News. Uh, the name of the column is Organic Answers. He produces the popular website DirtDoctor.com and speaks across the country to events, clubs, and businesses such as Mother Earth News Fairs. He's also chairman of the Texas Organic Research Center. Howard's experience includes landscape contracting, greenhouse growing, golf course planning and maintenance, and organic product development. He is an organic marketplace leader and consults on natural organic gardening, landscaping, farming, pet health, pest control, and natural living. His work includes research on planting techniques, tree health, use of native and well-adapted introductions, and water-saving solutions. So with the nickname Dirt Doctor, you have a long-standing reputation as an authority on soil health. Why is soil health so important for trees and other plants in our yards? Well, everything starts with the soil. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the basis of all plant growth, plant life, plant growth, health of the plants and, and all that. It's not taught in universities as much as it should be. It's taught some, but we delve into it to a much greater depth because if you have the soil healthy, there are very few insect and disease problems that we have to deal with. That's one of the first benefits of the natural organic program. And then the insect and disease problems and parasites and other problems that we do have uh, and we do from time to time because we'll push the envelope. We'll try to plant something that's really not perfectly well adapted or something like that. And when we do need to deal with past problems, we have solutions that work better. And that's the, that's the well-kept secret. A lot of people think the organic program doesn't work as well and you can't control things as well and all that, but it works better. And it's all because when the soil is healthy, the roots of the plants are healthy. They have this mycorrhizal fungus and other beneficial microbes growing on the roots of the plants. And that's where the power comes from to make the plants available to take care of themselves. And then the organic, uh, part of the reason for the organic is for the health of the organisms that do that work. Is that right? That's right. All, the, the two main things that I, I try to get people away from, uh, which are still taught in universities, unfortunately, are high nitrogen, salts, synthetic fertilizers, and toxic chemical pesticides. Well, both of those things are directly antagonistic and detrimental 
to that life in the soil. So everything we teach is trying to get people away from those things that injure the soil, that do harm, and go to things that build the life in the soil. How did you first become interested in trees? Oh, tree! <laughs> I've been nuts uh, for trees all my life. When I was a kid in Pittsburgh, Texas, my two favorite climbing trees in the front yard were mimosa and catalpa. Neither one are real high quality trees in the in the estimation of most people in the tree business these days. But I loved them both, and the main reason was. I didn't get skin up as bad. Both of them have real smooth bark, and uh, they were my favorite uh, climbing trees. And then I went to Texas Tech. I was going to be in uh, advertising art and uh, changed majors about three times. Uh, got into landscape architecture because I took horticulture as an elective because it sounded easier than chemistry, which it was, I'm sure. And that's when I got hooked. And my lab teacher... Uh, spent quite a bit of time talking about trees, and um, that's that's how it all uh, got started. But I, I just fell in love with trees in general, the, the magnificence of the trees, the um, color of the food, everything that's related to them. And then the more and more I learned, lo and behold, I, I learned that the easiest plants to grow on earth with this natural organic approach are the trees because they have this great ability to grow in soil that's not even very healthy and pull in nutrients and all to help uh, help the trees do well. But if you turn the soil into a healthy condition, they do even better. Do you remember the first tree you planted on your property or one of your properties? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, um, our first house was in Carrollton, Texas. I came here and I went into the golf business. I was going to be a golf course superintendent and a golf course architect at one time too and i planted um it's weird i planted some trees i don't recommend much anymore Uh, i had gotten interested in a tree called zelkova that somebody had mentioned to me looks like american elm but it's uh zelkova totally different genus and i planted it in the yard uh, there and it did fairly well and then i guess the next tree i planted which i still love and plant a lot was probably cedar elm. Cedar elm, one of our native uh, plants here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But I planted, I started planting all kinds of things really quickly. And my, th- my theory was if I planted a bunch of fast-growing trees and natives, good quality and bad quality, they would all grow. And then I would at some point take down the ones that had gotten too crowded and created a problem. There was only one problem with that philosophy. My wife didn't buy into it. Oh, and that could be a big deal if the life She didn't like removing trees, period, ever. So I ended up having overplanting, and it was when I first learned that uh, the most common question that I get asked on the radio and in columns and everything like that and personal appearances, how can I grow grass in the shade of my trees? The answer to that is you can't. (laughs) You either grow grass or you grow trees, one of the two. You're not going to do both. So um, anyway, that's how it all all got started. And then we started learning more technical things about all the trees. I'm a huge fan of native trees primarily. Uh, I do still recommend some introduced trees. And some trees, like my favorite, one of my favorites, the Montezuma cypress from Mexico, you know, it'd be ar- arguable whether it's native or not. It's, it's native to South Texas and some places, and it's native to 
Mexico. So is that native here or not? You know, it's but it's a fantastic uh, tree. So what do you see as some of the tangible and intangible benefits of having trees in our yards? Well, they're emotional. I think that people, almost all people, react uh, positively uh, emotionally to trees. They just like the way they look. They like the feel. When you go under a tree, it's like being in a, a very comfortable outdoor room. They're uh, capable of doing so many things, shading us in the uh, in the summer, being bare and letting the sun shine through in the wintertime and producing f- food crops. People just like big plants. It's It's kind of amazing to me that people in the tree business still aren't into some of the things that we teach because what we what we teach makes it so much easier to grow trees and they will last longer they'll grow a little faster they'll have uh, no insect or disease problems to speak of uh, at all including parasites and i'm sure we'll talk about all that later but it's just it's one of the the benefits of uh, what I, I teach people when adding trees to a home landscape what are important considerations for tree selection well, I think the uh, number one is just se- selecting a tree that you're going to enjoy looking at and being around, and uh, that gives you a wide range right there. And then two, you don't want to pick the fastest growing trees necessarily. There are a couple of really fast growing trees that are good, but you don't necessarily want to have that as the top consideration. The top consideration usually would be one that is going to handle the transplant shock, start to grow real well, and do what you want it uh, to do. So one that's that's going to be adapted to the soil that you have on the property uh, and one that is not going to require too much uh, maintenance. Those are the things that probably are num- you know, the highest on the list of considerations. Do you need to factor anything like the size of the mature tree or the size of the tree at maturity as far as? Yeah, you should. And a lot of people plant trees that get too big for where they go. And, and I'm not good to argue that because I've made that mistake myself in the past, overplanting, planting things too close to the house and all that. But it is good to think about th- whether it's a crepe myrtle or a yopon holly that's an ornamental-sized tree that's going to get 15 or 20 feet tall, or it's a Montezuma cypress that's going to get 100 feet tall or something, you know, in, in between. And obviously, you, you want to plant something that's going to be a reasonable size. We have oaks now that we recommend, for example, that don't get to be as gigantic as live oaks and red oaks and the big ones, and they're more... Uh, appropriate for residential property, things like lacy oak, beautiful little medium-sized tree, uh, native uh, oak. And then the Mexican white oak is another one of those Mexican-named trees that I consider a Texas native that's one of my favorite trees. It has beautiful, big, leathery, evergreen leaves, looks good almost 365 days of the year, doesn't have any serious insect or disease problems. It even handled the zero weather we had last February without much trouble at all. So that was a good thing to learn about the uh, Mexican white oak, too. It's also sold as Monterey oak. And the interesting story there, there was a a native tree company down in San Antonio that named it Monterey oak when they were in business. It was called Lone Star uh, Nursery or something like that. Well, they went out of business. And they didn't protect that name. They just kind of went away. 
And so the industry kind of picked up on that name Monterey Oak. So when you go, uh, when a homeowner or a landscape contractor goes to a growing operation now or a nursery to buy a Mexican white oak, they may find it under the name Monterey Oak and they may find it under white oak. They could find it either way. But it's a great tree. Are there any other, at the very top of your list of shade trees, are there any other ones that you think are uh, noteworthy? Well, as far as uh, those that are available now, I think my top choices are some of the things I've already mentioned. Montezuma cypress, which is a ball cypress. It's just a ball cypress that grows faster, doesn't have knees, and it's um, the largest one in the world, is arguably the largest tree in the world. It's in Oaxaca, Mexico. It's about 3,000 years old. So it's very special. But the lacy oak is is, is terrific. Uh, the native, I, I recommend an ash tree. A lot of people don't anymore these days because, you know, they think that the uh, beetle is coming in from the northeast and taking it out. But the one I recommend is a Texas native called the uh, Texas ash, and it's totally different than green ash and Arizona ash and the ones that are having trouble with the, uh, with the beetle problems, and it has gorgeous fall color. It has fall color that starts off a little bit yellow, and then it gets some reds and then maroons, and it'll have four or five uh, fall colors on the tree at the same time. Very drought tolerant, and it's in the white oak group. I think even if it does get attacked by some of the uh, pests that are hurting the ash trees, that we have a solution for it. And we we'll talk about that later. It's called the sick tree treatment, and we'll we'll get into that. But those are those are my favorites. There's one that's not on the market yet that I'm trying to figure out how to get on the market that I might mention because if anybody ever runs into it, you need to grab it, and it's called loquat leaf oak. And loquat leaf oak has the real thick uh, leaves like the Mexican uh, white oak, but the leaves are shaped more like a loquat bush leaf. In the zero weather, it didn't even turn yellow. It didn't even act like anything had happened. But it's not on the market. Um, David Creech, who's a friend of mine over at Stephen F. Austin uh and uh, Nacogdoches introduced me to it. He's been playing around with it for some number of years, and there's a big one growing there in, uh, in Stephen F. Austin. And I am definitely uh, beginning the work to try to figure out how to get it on the market. It's, it's just a fantastic tree. What about the smaller trees? Uh, sometimes they're called understory trees, the trees uh, in nature that would be growing underneath the big sure. canopy trees. So a, we have a, a lot of great ones. One of the Things when I consult with somebody on a new piece of property, one of the most common things I run into of people making a mistake or going into an, a new site that's that's wooded, and they go in and they cut down all the understory. They think that the big trees are important and the understory is not for some strange reason, and they cut down a lot of the things as a result that I recommend. Things like yopon holly and deciduous yopon holly, the possum hall. The rusty black hall verburnum, which is one of the most fantastic little trees you could ever use. It has beautiful, shiny green foliage all summer. 
red fall color, white flowers in the spring, edible fruit. It's just nothing could be better. But it, it's not propagated and grown in, and on the market uh, very much. So uh, red buds, white and purple, are great. Uh, our buckeyes, the Texas buckeye, the, um, the red-blooming um, scarlet buckeye is great. Even Ohio buckeye will grow here in Dallas-Fort Worth area. A lot of people don't realize that, but it does very well here. Uh, and also Mexican buckeye, which is a native. It's one of my favorite understory t- trees, too. It's just a terrific little tree. Beautiful, beautiful yellow fall color a lot of years. It just knocks your eyes out. You think the landscaping, uh, the retail landscaping industry, and the wholesale too, is uh, having more and more availability of some of these trees? Yes and and no. Most of the nurseries you go into are going to have red oak, live oak, cedar elm, crepe myrtle, Chinese pistachio, which we need to talk about a little bit, and um, maybe lacebark elm. Uh, That's two trees, lacebark elm and Chinese pistachio, that I used to recommend highly. In fact, I pretty much introduced the Chinese pistache to the Dallas-Fort Worth area when I was primarily in the landscape design business. And the male trees are fantastic. They're beautiful trees. The females are a problem. I think I had a female Chinese pistache in my backyard. (laughs) Females are a problem. And the, the reason is... One, when they load up with their fruit, the clusters of little bitty berries all over the tree, that saps the energy from the rest of the tree. And you'll see the foliage get yellow. You'll see the trees not grow nearly as well and things like that. But the biggest problem is that the birds love the fruit and are spreading it all over the place and it has become a very invasive species. It's now on the invasive invasive species list all over the United States. So I don't recommend that. I don't recommend lace bark elm anymore because it's an introduced tree too. It's a introduced from Asia, like a lot of good plants are. I mean, crepe myrtle and Japanese maples come from Asia. I have no problem with that at all. But the uh, lace bark elm has a fatal flaw, and it's a bad one. It, it is susceptible to um, cotton root rot and so a lot of the large ones are dying all over the place and it's also one of the trees that's chronically planted too deep in the containers chinese pistachio and and, uh, lace uh, lace bark elm both are the worst and that leads to all kind of problems down the road right and we'll talk about tree planting here in a minute but if if the the people that are initially putting the trees in the containers if they do it wrong, then the homeowner, they start off with a not a good situation. That's where it all starts. And unfortunately, it's a chronic problem. This chat is taking place here in the dead of winter. Uh, Can trees be purchased and planted now or would it be better to wait for another season? Well, you can plant trees. Trees are tough. You can plant trees literally any month of the um, of the year. But the fall and the winter are where you have the most you know, the best odds because all systems are pretty much shut down in the plant. If you're going to pick the ideal time to plant a tree, it would be fall because you're going to catch a little burst of root growth activity in the fall and then a little bit of growth all through the winter. And then when the uh, plants 
uh, leaf out and start to grow in the spring. They're going to grow like they've been there a while. So that's ideal. But we plant trees literally uh, in the landscape business year-round, no problem. You just have to be a little bit more, more careful if it's you know if they're gr- in the growing season. Your Dirt Doctor website describes a multi-step plan for planting trees. Can you kind of sum up for our listeners what those steps are? For planting techniques? Yeah, for planting trees. Well, I developed my recommendations on planting techniques over a period of time, but it was kind of early early on that uh, I, I ran into a fellow in Oklahoma who's not organic. He's a friend of mine who's not organic, but he uh, did a lot of experimentation on planting trees in different ways. He was really open-minded about that specific subject. And I had started using uh, some different techniques than people in the, in the industry have been using. One of them I learned from an old fella that was in the tree business years ago, very early in my career. His name was Cody Carter. And Cody planted very, very large trees uh, on landscape projects. And I was involved in some of those landscape projects. And he dug the holes for the big trees with a backhoe. He didn't put guys out there with shovels digging a nice round hole he dug them with a big back hole and he you know ripped and tore a pretty good hole in the ground to uh, plant them and after watching him and seeing how his trees did and talking to him and talking to other uh, people in the tree business Nod Burnett was also a landscape uh, fellow that I worked with years ago and really talked about a lot of these things it became real apparent that one of the m- most important things you could do was to dig an ugly, rough-sided hole so that when the tree was planted and backfilled and the roots grew out, it wouldn't hit a round, smooth hole and start circling in the hole. Well, a hole dug with a backhoe worked perfect because it's square. And the roots went over in the corners, you know, and would grow on out. And then I started writing into my specifications that when you dig the hole, you need to dig a saucer-shaped hole, not just a small hole big enough to get the tree in, but a a big, wide, saucer-shaped hole and make the edge as rough as possible. And then backfill with nothing but what came out of the hole. And that was not done in the industry very well back in those days either. People thought that, well, if I put some peat moss and some bark and some sandy loam and different kind of soil down in the hole, the tree would like that and do better. Well, that's not true because what happens is that as the tree grows out into that soft backfill, it likes it and it goes over and it hits the black clay or the whatever the native soil is. And it says, I don't like that. And it turns and starts circling in the hole and that creates a lot of problems that don't show up early on they sometimes show up you know years and years uh, later so those were some of the first things that i uh, kind of developed as far as my uh, planting techniques also working with uh, carl whitcomb up in oklahoma and his recommendations he had looked at what were the good and bad techniques of planting. And he ran into the wide, ugly hole being the most effective thing. And then the second thing was that thinning out the top of the tree, like a lot of people in the industry still do today, really was negative. You know, it, we, we want as much foliage left to gather sunlight and grow and 
and get the plant uh, going as possible. So he came up with that. He also agreed with my techniques that I had developed just because I didn't like the look of it, of only staking the tree as a last resort. Most people stake every tree they plant. They're people in the industry. And in most cases, 99% of the time, the staking is totally unnecessary and does damage to the tree. In what respect? Well, it doesn't let the tree move. The tree's movement with the wind is very important because it develops tensile strength and trunk caliper if it's, if it's allowed to move. So Carl came up with the idea that you connected, if you did have to stake the tree, you connected the uh, staking as low on the tree as possible and with loose connection so it could still move I, for example one project i was the i didn't i wasn't the landscape architect i was the arborist and i wrote the specifications for the installation of radio shack in fort worth 40 acres downtown fort worth and the landscape architect that i was shoved in to work with they weren't too thrilled about it big national firm big california national firm and so i put in the specifications that the trees bunch of red oaks and a bunch of cedar elms, bunch of bur oaks, bunch of different kinds of trees, 400 and some trees. And I put in the specifications that they were not to be staked. Well, they came and said, son, we know how to plant trees. We're going to stake the trees like we do on all our projects. And I said, well, no, we're not. <laughs> the architect and I had hit up a good relationship, and he knew that uh, we needed to follow my planning techniques i said i tell you what we'll do we will not put in the specs that the trees are to be staked but we will put in how to stake them as a last resort any of them have to be staked if they blow over or whatever and we'll add that to the contract on a per unit basis if it has to be done and they begrudgingly said okay because they figured it was going to you know, be a problem. We planted all those hundreds of trees, didn't have to stake one tree, not one. And they did beautifully. They, it's not Radio Shack anymore. It's the Tarrant County Community College, one of their facilities. Uh, and, it, and the project has had some issues because of maintenance through the time, but the trees have all done beautifully uh, well. The other thing that happened on that project was that there were big magnolias to be planted. And I had put into the specifications for the magnolias and all the trees that before they were to be planted, that an air spade had to be used to blow the soil off the top of the ball, which an air spade is like a big sandblasting machine, but just puts out air at a high velocity. And uh, again, they said, you know, we've planted a lot of trees. We don't really need your help about how to plant these trees. And I said, well, um, humor me. Let's use the air spade on, on a, two or three of these magnolias. The uh, magnolia pots were as big as this table, you know, like five feet in diameter, big, big black, black pots. And so they, again, begrudgingly took the air spade and blew the soil off from the base of the tree. They discovered that these magnolias were over a foot too deep in the soil in the container. Well, that's a very, very common situation. That's not unusual at all. The, the growers tend to do that accidentally as they mulch and add soil, but they even do it on purpose in some cases because it tends to make the tree grow more like a, 
a seedling real straight. And most landscape people want real straight, dramatic trees. I kind of like crooked trees myself, but anyway, that that's how it gets uh, started. So they, after doing it, did all the trees and planted the trees at the right height, and they did did well. But I tell you how hard that is to, to sell to the industry in general. Since that project, and they saw how well that worked, they went right back to planting trees the way they had done it before. It didn't soak in at all because it's just, it's not what is taught in the universities and it's not what the industry teaches. We have, we've set up an online uh, course teaching the natural organic program through our nonprofit, Texas Organic Research Center. And the main reason we did was that none of that stuff is taught at the university level anywhere, including where I went, uh, Texas Tech. Well, so for, I guess, the takeaway for, like, the homeowner that's going to be planting a tree would be in part that don't plant the tree too deep in the hole would be part of it, and, and don't put soil on top of the... The most important thing to do is this. These are the steps. Have the tree on the ground. Uh, if it's in a container, pull it out of the container. If it's bald and burlap, Un- loosen the, the burlap on the top. And in both cases, use your hands, brush, hard tools if you do it real carefully to loosen the soil and brush or use a blower and blow the soil off the top of the ball so you can get down to where the flare is doing what it's supposed to be doing, flaring out, not the trunk not coming straight out of the ground. And then once you establish where that true ball top is, then you measure the height and you use that measurement to dig the hole and it should be a little shallow of that dimension. That's the most important step people could, can make in planting a tree is establish where the flare really is and dig the hole at the right height. And nice and wide and rough-sided hole, like I I said. Don't thin out any of the top. Don't wrap the trunk. There's real bad advice still, especially in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, about wrapping trunks of certain trees. It doesn't do any good. In fact, it creates a problem. Water the plant in. uh, Let the, the weight of the water settle the soil. Nothing goes in the hole but the soil that came out of the ground, out of the hole. And, um... Stand back and let the tree grow. Now, you can put some amendments, organic amendments on the surface, organic fertilizers and rock minerals and sugars and the things that I recommend for bed preparation and all, but they shouldn't go down in the hole. They should just go on the surface of the soil and uh, let, you know, just a very natural situation get started. I used to make the mistake of recommending real thick mulch to go across the uh, disturbed area when you plant a tree. And I finally got smart enough to know that you don't want that. You, if you do that, the mulch builds up on the flare just like soil uh, will, and you don't want it. So the way we mulch now, my planting details show this, you start out at the outside perimeter of the hole that's dug, and you put after the soil has been settled uh, around the tree, you put the mulch Two inches, maybe three, but two is usually enough on the outside edge. And then you let the mulch get thinner and thinner and thinner as it gets near the trunk to where when you're at the trunk, there's no mulch at all touching the trunk. So it's a whole different uh, technique on mulching. 
Some trees you see that are planted commercially, they have a like a berm built around the periphery. Is that something that's necessary? or No, and I tell people when I come in and consult on a project and that's been done, that's the first thing I tell them to do is take that out, get rid of it. It doesn't do any good. If you plant the tree properly, you don't need it for watering. And then it, it's a maintenance problem. It's in the way. It tends to cave in and build up, you know, on the base of the tree. It's a, it's not anything good to do at all. Unfortunately, it's what's still taught in most universities. All right. So say we've got, uh, we've followed the steps. We've got our trees planted in the ground. We've, you know, maybe hopefully have one. Maybe we have more trees in the ground. So what are the main components of natural tree care for the recently planted as well as the established trees in our yard? Well, the main thing is to understand that trees are very durable and can take care of themselves. And so if you've planted with proper techniques, you don't have to do a whole lot. And so putting out uh, fertilizer specifically for the tree or spraying the tree on a preventative basis for insects and diseases, you know, none of that is anything that I recommend. Usually you you don't have to uh, do it. It's just a waste of money and, and detrimental to the uh, to the trees. If they have been planted properly, the the pest problems are very very few. If they do pop up, we have recommendations on every single one you can think of. My book uh, on uh, beneficial and uh, pest insects, a Texas tree book, you know, covers all that uh, stuff if people want great detail. But in most cases, if they planted it properly, they don't even have to deal with that. What signs should we be on the lookout for, or should homeowners be on the lookout for, for trees that are unhealthy or stressed? Well, that's a, that's a great question. We did a second online course because that's one of the most common things that I get asked about, these symptoms. And the course that we did is instead of 15 chapters covering the whole organic program like the first one that we did, it covers only one subject, and that's the sick tree treatment. The sick tree treatment is a procedure. It's not a product or anything. It's a procedure that I came up with for solving difficulties that a tree might be having. And we put in this little uh, video course that we did how to identify the symptoms of the tree being in stress, like you asked. The first one that you'll see is that the tip growth of the canopy has dead twigs right at the tips. And it's pretty easy to see once you, once you start looking for it. The second thing that you'll run into that's a symptom of stress is that the canopy will be a little thin, a little too thin, and you'll, you'll be able to see the sky too much through it. Uh, other symptoms are mistletoe. If a, if a tree has mistletoe in it, it's a dead cinch giveaway that it's in stress. And other parasites, kind of the same way, if it has uh, sapsucker birds, the, uh, uh, it's a woodpecker, pecking holes in the trunk in rows or in columns, dead giveaway, it's in stress. Because what's happening in that case, um, you might, uh, on a Japanese maple, in the ground or in a pot, you might have rodents, rats, mice, even uh, squirrels and rabbits eating the thin bark uh, from plants. That's a dead giveaway that the plant is in stress. And the sapsucker holes and the eating the bark are the easiest to diagnose because what that means 
is that the tree is unhappy about something. Generally, it's too deep in the ground or it's being fertilized with high nitrogen salt fertilizer that's artificial and causing a problem or something like that. So what the tree is attempting to do is concentrate sugars inside the plant, complex carbohydrates, to help itself. That's what the tree is doing. Well, the animal can detect that. The animal can detect the buildup of those complex carbohydrates, and they go after it. Well, if you got a, for example, the the uh, woodpecker pecking the holes in the tree trunk, you expose the base, the flare. You do the rest of my sick tree treatment procedure that I recommend, and that bird flies off and bothers its tree somewhere else. It's uh, it's amazing how fast it happens. If you have mistletoe in the tree and you do that procedure just exposing the flare sometimes will do it but especially doing the whole procedure the mistletoe throughout the canopy will turn brown dry up and die and go away normally that's evergreen isn't it? it's that like a a green right. you see a little cluster right yeah it, it, it is evergreen it stays there year round but if you do the sick tree treatment it dies. It just goes away. It's pretty amazing. We've got an old hackberry at my office where we did it, and it it even amazes me when I see how how, how well it works. But it really is is cool. The sick tree treatment. That's one of the. It's on your website, isn't it? Uh, it's in my books. It's on the website. The the latest uh, information about it is in the little uh, one subject online course called the sick tree treatment. But basically what it is is to identify the, the symptoms and then start doing the removal of the things that cause a problem. We did it on one of my own trees in my own front yard, which I had allowed to get in trouble myself, partly on purpose, partly because just I was cavalier through the years and, and had allowed ground cover a dwarf Nandina to migrate out around the base of the tree. Well, when you allow something like that to happen and you have water migrating across an area like that, the soil and the silt will build up and build up on the flare of the tree and cause a problem. And that's what had happened with my own tree. And we showed that whole procedure of how to identify that and how to, how to remove the plants and remove the soil. We took, we took on my own tree, and the tree was it's pretty good size, a 30-inch caliper tree, but we took about 15 inches of soil and mulch and plants and debris and everything off of the base of the tree as the first step of the sick tree treatment. And it has already, the first growing season, which is the, this one we just went through, it's already leafed out better. Tip growth, the dead tip growth doesn't exist anymore. It's already started to grow and doing great. Really works well. And we don't do any pesticides or anything like that. The only thing pest control-wise that I recommend as part of the sick tree treatment, well, a couple of things. One is as the final, the sick tree treatment is to expose the, the flare and then aerate the root zone. And there's two ways to aerate the root zone. One is you can physically aerate it with an aeration machine or hand tools. Uh, the second way is to get hydrogen peroxide from the grocery store and mix it with water 50-50 and drench it throughout the root system. It's, an, it's a liquid way of aerating the root zone. 
and it works beautifully. It um, starts the flocculation of the soil, softens the soil, uh, adds uh, air. It's, it's really a very easy way to go. And then we apply all the amendments to the entire root zone that are the same amendments that I recommend for bed preparation. Compost, rock minerals, sugars, and the rock minerals are lava sand, azomite, decomposed granite, things like that. The sugars are dry molasses and whole ground cornmeal. The whole ground cornmeal has a specific disease fighting capability. Whole ground cornmeal provides and stimulates a beneficial fungus in the soil called trichoderma. And trichoderma overrides rhizoctonia and fusarium and and pythium and, you know, all these uh, fungal diseases that some people fight with uh, trees and plants of other kinds. So you're just setting up a situation where you're, you're letting nature, letting the soil through your amendments there build that solution for you. And then the, the final step is to spray this liquid that I dreamed up years ago called garret juice. And we spray the foliage. We spray the, the limbs. We spray the trunk heavily, and we spray the ground plane with this garret juice. And what garret juice is, is compost tea, apple cider vinegar, liquid molasses, and seaweed. The formula is in all my books. People can make it themselves. It's also available commercially if people want to, don't want to make their own uh, brews. But it's kind of the final step of the sick tree treatment, and it's pretty, pretty remarkable about how uh, well it works. You can put killing additions into it that are acceptable in an organic program. For example, if you have a real bad disease going on and you want to knock it back, you know, real quickly or something, you don't have to use a toxic chemical. If it's a disease, you can use cornmeal soaked in water and spray cornmeal juice. You can spray the hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide will kill bacterial diseases, fungal diseases, and even viral diseases. And it works really well. But we don't want to use, and neem is okay, and orange oil. All those things are acceptable in the organic program, and they kill. They kill the pathogens and the pests. But you only want to use them as a last resort. Why? They'll kill the beneficials also, even though they're organic and, and acceptable you know, in, in the program. But we only want to do that as a last resort. Most cases, we don't have to do that. It's been fascinating, Howard. I really uh, appreciate you. We appreciate you coming on the pond. Uh, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with uh, regarding trees? Anything we've missed? Yeah, a couple of things. One, one little thing we, we did for everybody that's on the website that I'd recommend highly as a good starting point for uh, your new education in trees we have a slideshow there, and it's free. It's just right there on the homepage of DirtDoctor.com up in the right-hand corner, and it's called the Fabulous Tree Slideshow. And the Fabulous Tree Slideshow shows my planting techniques. It shows how to do the sick tree treatment. It shows some of the most fabulous trees in the world, including that 3,000-year-old Montezuma cypress I was telling you about and some of the other trees that I've, I've helped with. We have the, the national champion pecan tree, for example, here in Weatherford, Texas, that I've uh, helped with, and it's covered in the slideshow. 
my ginkgo that's at my house that's outgrown every other ginkgo I've ever seen in the world, and the story about it is there. My stories on planting specific plants like a little dwarf uh, Japanese maples covered. But anyway, it's a it's just a good place for people to get some basic starting uh, info. And then they can go to my books or to the website or the cl- online classes for more detailed stuff if they're interested in more. Well, thank you again for joining us. It's been fun. It's been great. Thank you to our Pond listeners. We'll see you next time on The Pond. You've been listening to The Pond Podcast, brought to you by the staff of the Dallas Public Library, where we inspire curiosity, connect people, and advance lives. See you next time, and until then, keep your eyes open for the natural world all around us.